Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. And welcome back to the Northern Agenda, the award-winning podcast that's going out to bat on behalf of the North of England. I'm Rob Parsons, back for another episode of insights and analysis from the North and about the North, brought to you by Reach, the people behind the Manchester Evening News and Liverpool Echo. Keep listening to the podcast this week to hear about a new book detailing one of the most vicious corporate battles in recent years, involving a maverick Northern industrialist, Andrew Cook as he tried to fend off the powerful financial institutions who wanted to take over his company. But the big topic on the agenda today is the local elections in the North. Who's up, who's down, who's in and who's out and what it means for the balance of power in our towns and cities and that levelling up agenda. I'm sitting at home in Leeds at 9am on a drizzly Friday morning, currently trying to get my head around a flurry of overnight results from the north of England, places like Hull, Salford, Grimsby, Newcastle and Hartlepool. We've had more than a dozen councils uh, declare their results so far uh, in the north of England, which means that as things stand, there are still several dozen more to be declared and hundreds more northern councillors to be elected. But we can still have a good go at working out what the results we have so far might mean. And we've got a great guest to do it with too, Zoe Billingham, Director of the IPPR North Think Tank. Zoe, welcome. Good morning, Rob. Great to morning. be here. Morning. Very, very nice to have you on, uh, as as always. So, um, I mean, looking, as always, the caveat with these elections, isn't it, is that uh, we won't know the full picture until maybe tea time or even, even towards the evening because of the way the results are spread out. But, I mean, there's already a bit of a trend emerging, isn't there, in terms of uh, Labour doing well, uh, the Conservatives losing seats, which I guess is, is what we would have expected. I mean, what what are the result? What's what's your interpretation of what we've seen so far? Yeah, I think that's right, Rob. So from what we've seen so far of the results coming in, they're kind of broadly in line with what pollsters were predicting going into this election with last, large losses, a prediction of up to a thousand seats for the Conservatives lost, um, and those gains falling mainly to Labour. But also, of course, we will probably see gains for the Liberal Democrats, Greens, and perhaps some independents too. So that balance of both who loses, but then who is gaining will be really important for who gets overall control of the 230 councils that are up for grabs today. So yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting one. And of course, the the, the councillors that we're, we're seeing up for election, the last time the, most of them were up for election was 2019. I mean, we've seen how many prime ministers since then? Four prime ministers. So it's like another, a whole another lifetime ago, doesn't it? From a exactly. political point of view. 
Exactly. So for a lot of people, their kind of local leadership will be the most stable political leadership that they've got close to them. So that will, that's, you know, adds to why, again, this, this election is a really interesting one, and especially a year out from a general. Yeah, I mean, um, Rishi Sunak's been out already this morning, and sort of uh, trying to temper any criticism about the losses that the Conservatives has, have, have made. And obviously, it needs to be pointed out that, uh, you know, the, the Conservatives were starting from a a low base, having done quite badly in 2019. But he told broadcasters today he was not detecting any massive groundswell of movement towards the Labour Party or excitement for its agenda, despite the opposition gains. But there have been a few sort of notable results. So let's go through some of the highlights in Northern England. So perhaps the one that most interested me is that there is a new mayor, mayor of Middlesbrough, uh, Chris Cook, has beaten uh, Andy Preston, who is an uh, independent uh, mayor, former city trader. Uh, so he will be the mayor of Middlesbrough with a swing of almost 20%, which um, is, you have to distinguish between uh, someone who's the mayor of a, a council, like Andy Preston is, and with someone like uh, Ben Houchin, who is a metro mayor, who has very different types of powers. But I think it's an interesting example of the sort of perhaps change in dynamic on Teesside, which is a big area of interest. Um, Bolton is going to go to no overall control. It was led by the Conservatives, but Labour are going to become the biggest party. Um, so we'll wait to see whether they take over the leadership as well. Labour also now the biggest party on Hartlepool Council, but one seat short of an overall majority. Um, in Hull, interestingly, it's a very different dynamic. Uh, Labour were trying to wrestle back control of Hull Council from the Liberal Democrats, but they did not do so. In fact, they, 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 their result got worse. And the Lib Dems, who were leading Hull Council, have now tightened their grip uh, on it. Um, a couple of other sort of headlines uh, in Sheffield. We haven't got the result yet, but the leader of Sheffield Council is apparently standing down. Labour's Terry Fox um, and Labour in Sheffield are in all kinds of uh, trouble. They're in a pretty dire position because of various scandals. So we'll see how that unfolds uh, over the over the day. I mean, any any particular for you, Zoe? Any particular results in the north that sort of give us an idea about what the public is thinking on levelling up, maybe, or give us a clue as to how the next general election might work out? Well, firstly, just on on levelling up, I think it's fair to say that um, the the general public as well as local councillors are feeling pretty sceptical about whether the government's really committed still to that agenda, albeit it's still crucially important and very high when when the public are polled about what they care about. And in fact, some recent polling done by the New Statesman showed that 71% of Conservative councillors felt that the Whitehall knows best mentality still rules the roost. So um, that's that's both scepticism from the Labour and the Conservative side. But just stepping back a minute and just reflecting on some of those results you were just speaking about, Rob, um, I think, firstly, the kind of Middlesbrough mayoral result is interesting one because, of course, the incumbent was an independent. And I think that's something we're going to see today that's going to be really interesting, which is a switch from independence potentially back into parties. Going into this election, when we look at the stock of councillor seats, there are more independent councillors than there are Liberal Democrats. And that could be something that really shifts um, in this election. Um, 
I think thinking about the the whole dynamic you picked out between kind of Lib Dems and Labour is interesting, isn't it? Because the the sort of wider commentary I always talk about, you know, the 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 blue wall in the south, which is Lib Dems versus Conservatives broadly. That's what you know people are referring to. And then in the north, people think about the red wall, which is you know Labour versus Conservatives. But of course, that doesn't hold true. Dynamic as Hull is showing us that actually, when Labour and Lib Dems go head to head there's a whole new dynamic going on there. And then just thirdly on Sheffield, of course, Sheffield Council is still very much suffering from the impact of the tree felling campaign um, that started some years ago, but um, resulted in a kind of takeover of the council at a recent election. So it just shows that whilst I know a lot of people will be looking for the kind of general election trends out of today's results, you know, hyper-local issues can totally dominate local campaigns and totally shift results and of course people don't always vote the same locally as they do at a general election anyway particularly given our current voting systems yeah that's no that's a very good point and it's worth pointing out actually that in a couple of councils in the northeast uh sunderland and south tyneside um the liberal democrats and the green party respectively have now moved to be the main opposition uh in in those councils and actually across the north i've done a bit of number crunching the lib dems have gained seven seats so far um and like you say in, independents have lost out nine independent councillors have lost their seats uh labor have gained 30 seats in the councils we've seen so far and the conservatives uh minus minus 23 um I, it's i mean yeah i think a lot of attention in terms of leveling up is going to be on uh, Teesside, because as we've previously noted, it, it, it's an area where the impact uh, for good or ill of the government's levelling up policies, if you think about free ports and, you know, moving the headquarters of uh, the Treasury up to Darlington, th- those are the places where it's most obvious. So I think it's it's Teesside where people will be uh, sort of looking most carefully for the results. And actually, I've had a, a senior conservative who messaged me about what's happened on Teesside. And he was um, saying that, I'm just looking at my, my WhatsApp messages now, um, in Middlesbrough, um, he, th- this person was surprised that uh, Andy Preston didn't hold on to the mayoralty, but actually questioning whether this was such a big win for Labour since Middlesbrough was uh, has been largely under Labour control since it was, it was created in the 1970s. And, and obviously while Hartlepool... Uh, Labour have made some some gains. Is it a great result that they haven't actually managed to take full control of the council and only moved into no overall control? Um, speaking of Hartlepool, uh, we've got a, a voice note now to bring you a little dispatch from the Hartlepool local elections. Uh, Nick Marco, who's the local democracy reporter for Hartlepool, uh, has been at the count overnight and he has filed this little account for us. In the Hartlepool Borough Council local elections, where one third of the 36 seats on the local authority were up for grabs, it was a good night for Labour, who celebrated becoming the biggest party on the council. However, they remain one seat short of the 19 needed for an overall majority. 
Labour won nine out of the 12 available seats in the latest local polls, making gains in five wards, and two of those seats were gained directly from Conservatives. The Conservatives themselves had success in a tightly contested poll in the Hart Ward. There was two recounts, which resulted in their candidate, Rob Darby, having two votes more than the Labour candidate, um, and that ultimately was the difference between Labour holding an overall majority or being left on 18 seats as they are. The Conservatives, they also retain the seat in rural West where their group leader Mike Young was re-elected. In terms of uh, reaction, Labour said they were proud of the results they've had and their first job is to be fighting to be in control of the council for the coming municipal year. The Conservatives, they admitted it was a disappointing result, but they pointed to how in recent years with the uh, council under the control of a Conservative and Independent coalition, um, they've secured tens of million pounds of investment into the town centre um, and they want to continue to be pushing that regeneration, whether they're in power or not. It will be at the annual general meeting uh, later this month where it will be decided who will be ruling the council for the coming year. So that is uh, Nick Marco, who's a reporter in Hartlepool. Um, there's one other thing I wanted to ask you about, um, Zoe, which is the impact of uh, voter ID uh, on on proceedings. Obviously, this these local elections are the first in the history of this country where you are required to bring some item of photographic ID to be able to vote. And if you don't have an item of photographic ID, you can bring a uh, a special certificate you can apply for from the government um and and i see the government has been out this morning saying that you know all the elections went well and there were no major issues but anecdotally around the north there were quite a few incidents i've been hearing about people being turned away from polling stations residents in in tears because they didn't know they had to bring uh, id and they're not being able to not being able to vote i mean again we won't know the full extent of it until the full numbers uh, come in. But I mean, what's your what's your view on that? I mean, the, the requirement now for voter ID, and of course, this is the first um, election we've had since this has become a requirement, and it will be a requirement at the general election in, this, in the same way, um, you know, has been called a, a solution with no problem. You know, when we look at the, the extent of voter fraud in this country, it's incredibly low. Um, and so, as you say, you know, the, the kind of ramifications of having to bring ID, people being turned away, people being disenfranchised. We've also heard reports of people like leaving their ID at voters, um, voter polling stations. You know, all of this stuff, I just think we could end up with a bigger problem than the problem that apparently we were trying to fix, <laughs> if that makes sense. So um, I hope that um, the the extent to which people have been turned away or not been able to vote is being properly recorded so we can see the full impact of this on the other side of the count because frankly um as i say there could be more problems stemming from the requirement of voter id than than there were ever in the first place absolutely and um in terms of what we've got for the rest of the day uh hopefully this podcast will go out around lunchtime and there's still dozens of uh elections still to happen are there any you're particularly looking out for for me i think darlington will be uh really interesting the other places in uh in in, in teesside as well i mean are there any any particularly on your on your radar yeah i think that's right um darlington's got to be a key one um particularly given the sort of optics of that being in the chancellor um in indeed the prime minister's patch redcar and cleveland stockton you know these are these are key ones to watch on teesside for sure um, I think in Liverpool, where I'm, I'm speaking to you from, I don't think there'll be any surprises here. 
um, although there has been a lot of work and campaigning from smaller parties trying to um, chip at Labour's dominance here. So, you know, I think an, an interesting set of results and look forward to seeing um, what comes for the rest of the day. Absolutely. Well, we'll all be uh, glued to the TV and our mobile phones, as always, and Twitter to keep on keep out for the results. Um, Zoe Billingham, thank you so much. A pleasure. Thank you, Rob. So I want to take you back nearly 30 years to the mid-1990s, described as a time of social, economic and political change, but also when the Conservative government was at the end of a long spell in power. You might say it's a period that bears some similarities to 2023, but while the big political news at the time was the emergence of Tony Blair and New Labour, in the business world, the big story involved Andrew Cook, a maverick northern industrialist and chairman of Sheffield-based William Cook Holdings, as he tried to fend off a hostile takeover from a raiding party backed by powerful financial institutions. It was one of the most vicious corporate battles of recent times, and it's been brought back to life in a new book called Outcast by Bernard Gins, the former business editor of the Yorkshire Post newspaper. It's based on archives, diaries and unpublished memoirs of Sir Andrew Cook. So I want to hear more about this. So welcome, Bernard, to the Northern Agenda podcast. Thanks, Rob. It's great to be here and nice to see you again, because uh, I should let listeners know that we are former colleagues at the Yorkshire Post. We are indeed. Yeah, we had many happy years together at the, at the, the Yorkshire Post, didn't we? Pre, pre, all, all pre-pandemic. It feels like another an, another life, another life, very different times these days. But um, it's, it's a fascinating story, Outcast, telling the story of Sir Andrew Cook. So what gave you the idea to tell it in the first place? Well, I'd, I'd got to know Andrew Cook um, when I was business editor at the Yorkshire Post. I'd met him, I think, in 2011. And um, when I was doing that job, I met loads of business people from all kinds of different backgrounds, all sort of diff- you know, different walks of life. And he just, he stood out as a particularly colourful character because he was, um, sort of has a sort of unusual level of intelligence and a a very successful company and he was very outspoken and he sort of put his money where his mouth is and in a a sort of a corporate world where business leaders and professional managers are quite careful about what they say and how they say it he he was like he was a breath of fresh air so he made great copy so I knew that and then um, I left the YP in 2016 and I set up a PR consultancy and he was one of the, the people I sort of wrote to um, looking for business. And he was then involved with the um, Conservatives in campaign to uh, in the lead up to Brexit referendum, because whilst he's a kind of a long standing Eurosceptic, he felt that leaving the single market would be bad for the UK economy. So I helped to sort of amplify his concerns um, without much success. So obviously, if you know how things turned out on that front. But the um, so my, my PR company was doing a bit of work for um, William Cook Holdings and some research work actually during the first lockdown. And I was going through the company archives and um, I found all the press cuttings from this takeover bid. And it was like two, um, two kind of folders thick. Um, and it was in the it was in the national business pages of like the FT, the Times, the Telegraph, the Daily Mail pretty much every day for about three months. And this is like sort of pre-internet news material, like really well-staffed newspapers covering every cough and spit um, of this story. 
and this hostile takeover bid, which became increasingly acrimonious as it went on. And it just, it just, it made, it made great copy. So anyway, I came across this material and I said to Andrew, this would make a brilliant business book. And he said, well, why don't you write it then? So off I went. I did, I did some more research. I had access to his, um, his diaries, um, some unpublished memoirs about his uh, quite traumatic childhood um, and, and, obviously, and, and all the press cuttings. And I did some interviews and then wrote it up. And here it is now. I'll hold up a copy, as people do when they plug their books. So, yeah. Fantastic. Well, our, our podcast listeners won't, won't be able to see that, but it's a lovely uh, eye-catching, uh, eye-catching book cover. Yeah, it's a picture of a crucible pouring some molten steel. So it's, it's kind of, that's what William Cook does. It's, 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 a, it's a steel castings company. Um, probably one of the, you know, it's, it's one of the most important companies of its kind in the UK. And it's, it's a key, it is, it remains a key supplier to the British defence industry. So, you know, it, it's an important company now and it was an important company then. And there was a, there was a big battle for control of this technology. So tell me a bit about Andrew Cook himself. You mentioned that he was sort of quite an unusual character in terms of the type of people that you would deal with in the in the business world but he had a fascinating sort of uh, childhood and fascinating way that he got into the business world in the first place didn't he um he lost his mum at, at the age when he was just two years old um she caught polio which was kind of sweeping through europe in, 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 the, in the 1950s and he never really saw eye to eye with his father um he went to seven different schools and he kind of was running away from school and he ended up at um, high stores um grammar school in sheffield where he learned how to fight back and um, the, he, he decided at a young age that he, he, it was his destiny to take over the family company, um, which his father had floated on the stock exchange. So against his father's wishes, he joined the family firm and, and basically was sleeping um, in the office every night as he was sort of fighting to turn around the company because it was on the sort of basically on the brink of failure in, in the early 80s. And um, he forced his father out and basically built up William Cook PLC into the, the biggest steel castings manufacturer in Europe. Um, they had some sort of problems in the early 90s. And, um, and then that's sort of the, the company, I suppose, the share price was quite low. And that's when this hostile takeover bid appeared from Triplex Lloyd, which was a rival engineering group um, whose financial performance had been sort of, I think, flattered by some creative accounting methods. And with the encouragement of some fund managers in in the city, they launched this hostile takeover bid. And I think they kind of underestimated uh, Andrew Cook. And at the time, I think all, all the financial commentators and the journalists and the analysts expected Triplex Lloyd to win. But um, as, you, as you can see from the book, that it, it didn't quite turn out that way. And I mean, presumably for the people who worked for uh, worked for the company, it, it must have been a very uh, quite a traumatic, sort of stressful time because they're, they're presumably their their jobs were potentially at risk if if the if the takeover had had gone the wrong way or you know the wrong people had ended up in in charge. So it felt like there was quite a lot of, at at stake at the time. Yeah, well, there was several hundred employees um, at William Cook across seven foundries in the north of England and by and large the company paid its staff well and 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 the men were loyal to to Andrew Cook 
and um, that there was a fear of, of the unknown. And Triplex Lloyd and its kind of in its offer documents had talked euphemistically, euphemistically about head office savings. So basically, they just wanted to take over the company and get rid of Andrew Cook. And it turned out later in the book, um, in in the story, that actually Triplex Lloyd had a had a pretty poor safety record at some of its own foundries where workers had been uh, had suffered catastrophic burns because of um, because of poor safety standards and they'd actually been um, fined, you know, they'd been prosecuted in court um, over that. But in, but in the end, um, without giving any spoilers away, um, he, he kept he kept his job and he managed to take managed to take the company private and off the stock exchange, and it remains today in in family ownership. Oh well, that's it. So, well, from that from their point of view, it's all ended well. So, I'm I'm intrigued from a you know point of view of writing the book. Presumably, um, uh, Sir Andrew he he cooperated with you the whole time. Like this book was done with his 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 blessing. He wanted his story to be to be told. Yeah, well, it was you could call it, you could call it an authorized account, but um, I did have editorial control throughout. Um, you know, I had I had a sort of it was held because there was I had his diaries from the time, so I had the chronology, I had all the newspaper cuttings, and I had the um, sort of corporate archive material, and I did the interview. So it's quite a sort of a clear story structure, and it was just a it was just a case of getting it all in the right order. So, you know, setting it up, keeping the pace going, and um, he, he provided feedback only really on matters of fact. So I had a pretty free reign in the writing of it. And it's, I wouldn't say it's a hagiography. I think it's a pretty even-handed account of, um, of, 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 a, you know, of a very complex man, really, given his background and what he's been through and his sort of, his persistence and determination um, to, to sort of you know to, to win in business so yeah so yeah, it, was, it, was, it was a great experience so and and yeah obviously we're now in 2023 nearly three decades on what what sort of makes the book in your view sort of interesting to people looking back on that on on that time obviously you know the 1990s in some respects quite a similar period to what we're in now but obviously a lot of a lot very different era in a lot of in a lot of ways do you, do you think the events of those years sort of they they're still of interest now to people. Well, I think so. I mean, I, I mean I'm a sort of biased view, obviously, but I think the uh, it's a sort of it's a David versus Goliath tale, and I think today people can feel quite powerless and can feel a lack of agency in the face of big institutions in in all walks of life. And I think this is just quite a nice, inspiring story of that that reminds us that it is possible to fight back. That individuals can make a difference through force of character and, and, and strength of will. And there is, you know, I think that there are some similarities between now and then. Um, obviously, we're, it feels like we're at the end of one political cycle um, with, you know, the, cons- the Conservatives in some disarray. And there's quite a lot of sleaze around now. There's quite a lot of sleaze around then. Um, Keir Starmer is obviously very different from from Tony Blair, um, from, you know, probably not as charismatic, but would he go on and um, mount an invasion of Iraq? I mean, we, that, 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 that remains to be seen. But the, um, and I think the, this was in 96, 97 was really at the dawn of, of the internet age of, you know, the, the, there's some stuff in the book about this, the information superhighway and the world wide web. And we saw how that sort of transformed, you know, sort of social life. 
um, politics and business. And now, you know, we, we, it feels like we're at the dawn of another sort of digital epoch with um, with AI. Um, so, you know, who, who knows how that's going to change things over the next 25 years. So so there are there's some timeless elements. There are some similarities, but of course, there are lots of difference. But I think there's a bit of nostalgia for the 90s with the Spice Girls and Oasis and all, all that malarkey. So. Yeah, people of a certain age will be able to look back on it and remember some pivotal times from their from their lives. So, what's what's next for uh, for you and, and and the book? I know it's been launched. You're sort of having a launch event this week, aren't you? In uh, in Ilkley. But do you have any other plans for it? Well, I've been I've started turning it into a screenplay. Actually, I watched um, Bank of Dave on Netflix, which is a sort of similar story about a sort of northern um, underdog businessman um sticking it to the stuffed shirts in the in the city of london and it has been you know i've had, I've had some really good feedback from people who've read outcast and quite a few of the comments have been that it would make a great film so i contacted um i think there's a script writers group in yorkshire and i contacted them i said well, you know would anyone be interested in this as a commission and they came back to me and said well yeah you're a journalist you're an author why don't you write it so i've started writing it so what what's this space well, if you're a Netflix executive uh, listening to or watching this podcast, Bernard is uh, is free is is free to work with you, I'm sure. Well, it's a fascinating uh, read, which I think would be well worth people checking out. It's available on Amazon, I assume. Yeah, Amazon. Uh, yeah, either sort of print print copy or di- or digital edition, and uh, yeah, it's been described by uh, the business editor that Spectator as a gripping true life takeover drama. So there you go. There you go. Well, praise indeed. Uh, Bernard Jins, author of Outcast. Thank you very much. Thank you, Rob. Nice to see you again. And thanks for taking an interest in the book. for listening to the northern agenda podcast and don't forget you can subscribe to our daily newsletter at thenorthernagenda.co.uk it's more important than ever for northern voices to be heard the northern agenda is a laudable production for reach it's presented by me rob parsons and it's produced by daniel j mccoughlin if you enjoyed this episode please subscribe to the northern agenda wherever you listen to your podcasts including apple and spotify see you next week